0: This episode of American Biography is brought to you by new patron, Michael. Michael has joined the ranks of sustaining patrons that have pledged to support the podcast by subscribing through our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash ambio. If you too wish to help keep the show going, please consider signing up, and as my way of saying thanks, you'll qualify for exclusive patron-only episodes, whenever they're released. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 22, The Curious Case of William Marbury. Last time, we spoke about the brave new Jeffersonian world that Marshall and the other justices found themselves and witnessed their acquiescence to the repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801 and the subsequent sacking of dozens of federal judges by agreeing to resume the dreaded practice of riding the circuit. John Marshall had the good fortune to have been assigned the Fifth Circuit, which encompassed his home state of Virginia as well as North Carolina. The Circuit Court of Virginia met in Richmond and was the busiest in the nation, but if you think back to our Virginia Convention episode, you'll recall that Marshall's home was literally down the block from the state house where the court met, so this was a pretty easy commute. The North Carolinian courts met in Raleigh, which made it a 165-mile trip, but if the weather stayed fair and there were no frog stranglers to turn the roads to mud, it could be made in just three days. Marshall's habit of cultivating friendly personal relationships, which transgressed party lines, may have factored into him getting this plum assignment, considering he had competition for the 5th. After all, his friend Bushrod Washington was also a Virginian. And there was Justice Alfred Moore, who was from North Carolina, and both probably would have been interested in working closer to home. But what can you say? It's good to be the chief. As we've discussed in previous episodes, riding the circuit was often unpleasant, and not well-loved by the justices. Having a sense of humor about it, though, helped make it easier. And such is what Marshall displays in this letter to his wife, Polly, in 1802. You will laugh at my vexation when you hear the various calamities that have befallen me. In the first place, when I came to review my funds, I had the mortification to discover that I had lost fifteen silver dollars out of my waistcoat pocket. They had worn through the various mendings the pocket had sustained and sought their liberty in the sands of Carolina. I determined not to vex myself with what could not be remedied, and ordered Peter to take out my clothes that I might dress for court, when, to my astonishment and grief, after fumbling around several minutes in the portmanteau, staring at vacancy and sweating most profusely, he turned to me with the doleful tidings that I had no pair of breeches. You may be sure this piece of intelligence was not very graciously received, However, after a little scolding, I determined to make the best of my situation, and immediately set out to get a pair made. I thought I should be sans culotte only one day, and that for the residue of my term I might be well enough dressed for the appearance of the first day to be forgotten. But the greatest of evils I found was followed by still greater. Not a tailor in the town could be prevailed on to work for me. They were all so busy that it was impossible to attend to my wants, however pressing they might be, and I have the extreme mortification to pass the whole term without that important article of dress I have mentioned. So yeah, that's right. His Honor, Mr. Chief Justice John Marshall, presided over cases for almost a week without pants. You know, suddenly, I don't feel so bad about spilling that little bit of coffee on my shirt driving into work. But regardless of what was going on beneath his judicial robes, attorneys like Joseph Story, who as a young man argued cases before John, would be confronted by the man Story describes here. Marshall is of a tall, slender figure, not graceful or imposing, but erect and steady. His hair is black, his eyes small and twinkling, his forehead rather low, his manners are plain, yet dignified, and an unaffected modesty diffuses itself through all his actions. His dress is very simple, yet neat, his language chaste, but hardly elegant. In conversation he is quite familiar. His thoughts are always clear and ingenious, sometimes striking. He possesses great subtlety of mind, but it is only occasionally exhibited. I love his laugh, it's too hearty for an intriguer, and his good temper and unwearied patience are equally agreeable on the bench and in the study. His genius is, in my opinion, vigorous and powerful, less rapid than discriminating, and less vivid than uniform in its light. He examines the intricacies of a subject with calm and preserving circumspection, and unravels the mysteries with irresistible acuteness. Despite all of its hardships, Marshall may have preferred staying on the circuit in eighteen o three rather than returning to Washington for the long awaited February session of the court, since the city remained a partisan hornets' nest. While the justices themselves had decided not to challenge the republican repeal of the Judiciary Act of eighteen o one, the congressional federalists certainly intended to. Almost from the first, the Federalists' primary tactic in combating the repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801 had been to introduce a number of test cases into the circuit courts with the ultimate goal of landing the question of the constitutionality of the repeal before the Supreme Court. Stuart v. Laird is perhaps the most prominent of these cases. Marshall actually heard this case on circuit and dismissed it, then recused himself when it later came before the High Court on appeal, where it was once again dismissed as being a settled question. But another case loomed over the Court in 1803, unlike all the others, the origins of which actually predate the Congressional Republicans' judicial reforms. So for the sake of background, we're going to jump back almost two years to catch up on the curious case of William Marbury. On March 2nd, 1801, amid a flurry of judicial appointments, William Marbury had been nominated by President Adams as Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia for a period of five years. The nomination had been ratified by the Senate on the same day. The commission was signed by the President and sealed by Secretary of State John Marshall, who rather embarrassingly forgot to mail it out. We have a letter from John to his brother James, several weeks after Jefferson's inauguration, explaining why he hadn't thought much of leaving the sending of the commissions to his successor James Madison. I did not send out the commissions because I apprehended, such as were for a fixed time, to be completed when signed and sealed, and such as depended on the will of the President might be at any time revoked. To withhold the commissions of the Marshal is equal to displacing him, which the President, I presume, has the power to do. But to withhold the commission of the justices is an act of which I entertained no suspicion. Essentially, John thought the commissions that were signed and sealed were valid, and didn't think it possible that the new administration would see it any differently. But Jefferson and Madison disagreed, and decided to withhold the commissions that had been approved by the lame-duck Federalists, and proceeded to make their own appointments. However, William Marbury refused to accept this, and in December of 1801 invoked Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which allowed him to apply directly to the Supreme Court for a writ of mandamus, to compel Secretary Madison to deliver up his commission. Now, if mandamus sounds familiar, it's because you heard it a long, long time ago in episode 13 when I told you to file it away because it would be coming up again. But in the odd chance that you don't remember, I'll just remind you that a writ of mandamus is an order from a court to an inferior government official, corporation, or public authority ordering them to properly fulfill their official duties or correct an abuse of discretion. As you can see, the facts of the case are rather straightforward, but this would hardly be worth going on about if things didn't get at least a little bit dicey. So under the expanded original jurisdiction granted by the Act of 1789, the Supreme Court accepted Marbury's application and ordered Secretary Madison to show cause why a mandamus should not be issued, which seems fair, and a hearing was scheduled for the following term of 1802. Only we know that the Supreme Court wouldn't meet in 1802 because in the interim, the Congressional Republicans repealed the 1801 Judiciary Law and passed the Replacement Act of 1802, which pushed back the Court's next term until February of 1803. So now we're all caught up. On January twenty seventh, 1803, on the eve of Marbury's hearing, the Federalists did their best to stir the pot and presented 11 personal memorials from the recently unemployed circuit judges to the House and Senate requesting that Congress define their status and refer the issue of their compensation to the Supreme Court. On the very next day, Senator John Howard of Maryland introduced a request for a certified copy of the Senate's executive journal from March 1801 on behalf of William Marbury, who was on the hunt for evidence that his commission actually existed. Because the State Department, well, the whole executive branch really, was stonewalling Marbury's request for documentation, and the journal could actually prove that his confirmation had happened. But Senate Republicans instantly recognized what Federalists were angling for, and a floor fight erupted, with one Republican calling the request, "...an audacious attempt to pry into executive secrets by a tribunal." which had no authority to do any such thing, and to enable the Supreme Court to assume an unheard-of and unfounded power, if not despotism. Debate also raged in the House, where the argument focused on the repeal itself, where Federalists argued that the Court needed to review the constitutionality of the Repeal Act, while Republicans countered that the people, not the courts, were the judges of the constitutionality of acts of Congress, And just in case you were wondering how high the stakes were getting at this point, and what kind of pressure would soon bear down on Marshall, one Republican, John Nicholas of Virginia, issued a none-too-subtle call for violence, should the repeal be overturned, declaring, If the Supreme Court shall arrogate this power to themselves, and declare our law to be unconstitutional, it will then behoove us to act. Our duty is clear." When all was said and done, the numerically superior Republicans voted down the memorials in the House and Senate, and voted down the question of sharing the Senate journal with Marbury as well. So with the eleventh-hour legislative machinations over, the action moved definitively to the Supreme Court. I find it hard to overemphasize the importance of Marbury v. Madison. It is, in short, everything it's the Supreme Court case in American history that sets the stage on which all subsequent cases would play out. Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson, Brown v. Board of Ed, Loving v. Virginia, Roe v. Wade, Abderfell v. Hodges. No subsequent court case, however sweeping, whether you or I think it good or bad, would be possible but for this one case in 1803. Marbury is an institutional, and political game-changer that perhaps defines the nature and practical functioning of the federal government, and particularly the Supreme Court, more completely than even the Constitution itself does. So with the facts of the case laid out, and the magnitude of what's to come hopefully given some context, the stage is now set for the Herald to cry, Oyez, on February 10, 1803. The proceedings themselves began awkwardly, due to the fact that the Judiciary Act of 1789 granted the court original jurisdiction over mandamus questions. So the justices sat as a trial court rather than an appellate court, as they usually did. That awkwardness was raised to straight-up discomfort when it became clear that defendant, James Madison, who had never responded to the show-cause order, also wasn't going to show up to the hearing or even send a representative. And this was the state of things when Charles Lee, attorney for William Marbury, delivered his opening statements. Lee's first objective was to prove Marbury had been confirmed as justice of the peace. He called upon two State Department clerks as witnesses, and both initially refused, citing executive privilege. Marshall nonetheless ordered them to be sworn in, promising them that they could object to any question, but the court would decide if they must answer. Both clerks cooperated, but neither claimed to have any direct first-hand knowledge of the commissions, though they'd heard talk of them. Lee next called Levi Lincoln, Jefferson's Attorney General, who had briefly acted as Interim Secretary of State between Marshall's departure and Madison's arrival. Lincoln agreed to participate, but rather than be interrogated by Lee, asked if the questions could be instead reduced to writing. Marshall granted this courtesy. The questions were written out, and Lincoln was given the evening to craft his responses. The next day, Lincoln read out his answers, which revealed that he was aware of the existence of commissions that had been signed and sealed by Adams, but that he couldn't recall if any had been for a Marbury. Lincoln also said he couldn't say with certainty whether the commissions had been sent out, but he rather believed they had not been. Running out of options, and not having really proven the existence of Marbury's commission yet, Lee produced his trump card, something he may have been holding on to in case of emergency since it held the potential to embarrass the Chief Justice. He produced an affidavit from James Marshall, who swore that he'd seen the commissions in the office of the Secretary of State, meaning his brother John's office, and said that he had attempted to deliver a number of them without success and had returned them to the State Department. Like any reasonable older brother, John probably then muttered, Thanks a lot, you little jerk, and punched little Jimmy in the arm before baby bro scampered home to tattle to mommy. Anyway... With that, Lee asserted that the existence of the commissions had been proven, and he moved on to his closing arguments. Following that, Marshall asked Levi Lincoln if he wished to respond. Lincoln said that he had received no instructions from Madison, and therefore declined to speak for him, at which point Marshall, increasingly uneasy with the fact that no semblance of the adversarial process had thus far been followed, literally announced that the court would attend to the observations of any person who was disposed to offer his sentiments. When only crickets responded, Marshall said the court would postpone judgment and moved on to other business for the remainder of the day. The Supreme Court was in a pickle, and Marshall knew it. The judicial branch, at this time, was commonly acknowledged to be the weakest branch of the federal government. Hamilton, for instance, wrote, the judiciary has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. Marshall and company knew that they had a weak hand. So what were their options? could they not issue the writ of mandamus? Eh, so blatantly failing to fulfill their duty in such a clear-cut case would at best appear a cowardly dodge and would pretty much delegitimize the court from there on out. So that really wasn't an option. What if the court did the obvious thing and issued the writ? How would that play out? Since Madison had already ignored the court's show-cause order and hadn't bothered to show up to the hearing, there really wasn't a reason to think that there was a great chance that he'd respond to the order to deliver the commission. So assuming that the State Department defied that order, as Hamilton suggests, the court must rely on the president to enforce it. But this is the very same president who ordered Madison to withhold the commission in the first place, ordered him to ignore the show cause order, and told him to skip the hearing, too. So, yeah, this wasn't a great option either. I mean, if you wanted to try to lasso the moon, you could hope that if the president failed to support the court's mandamus order, Congress, in righteous indignation, would stand up and impeach and remove the president. But one, this is a Republican Congress. And two, that's a big-time power move and we're still in a period where the branches of government were feeling each other out, and nobody, not even Madison, the so-called father of the Constitution, knew exactly how all the machinery of government worked in every situation. It should be noted that this sort of confrontation is exactly what the justices had hoped to avoid by not raising any fuss over the repeal of the 1801 Judiciary Act, And to be fair to the administration, they hadn't sought this either, but the executive branch wasn't ready to weaken itself institutionally by just caving to a nakedly toothless demand either. On top of it all, this situation was exposing legitimate philosophical differences of opinion concerning the Supreme Court's supremacy in matters of constitutional interpretation and bringing them to a head. Jefferson feared that if the Supreme Court was the sole arbiter of the Constitution, it would exercise a tyranny over the other two branches. It was an idea that he would never retreat from, and later in life he spelled it out in a letter this way. My construction of the construction is that each department is truly independent of the others, and has an equal right to decide for itself what is the meaning of the Constitution in the cases submitted to its action, and especially where it is to act, ultimately, and without appeal. And in a separate letter he expounded on this thinking. You seem to consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges are as honest as other men, and not more so. They have, with others, the same passions for party, for power, and the privilege of their corps. Their power is the more dangerous as they are in office for life, and not responsible, as the other functionaries are, to the elective control. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal, knowing that, to whatever hands confided, with the corruptions of time and party, its members would become despots. It has more wisely made all the departments co-equal and co-sovereign within themselves. Now, the flip side to this argument was, not surprisingly, argued by Alexander Hamilton, who in Federalist 78 wrote, If it be said that the legislative body are themselves the constitutional judges of their own powers, and that the construction they put upon them is conclusive upon the other departments, it may be answered that this cannot be the natural presumption, where it is not to be collected from any particular provision in the Constitution. It is not otherwise to be supposed that the Constitution could intend to enable the representatives of the people to substitute their will to that of their constituents. It is far more rational to suppose that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body, between the people and the legislature, in order, among other things, to keep the latter within the limits assigned to their authority. The interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. A constitution is, in fact, and must be regarded by the judges as a fundamental law. It therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning, as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. If there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two, that which has the superior obligation and validity ought, of course, be preferred, or, in other words, the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute. Marshall and company discussed the Marbury matter for two weeks. During this time, Justice Chase became ill, and the court moved their sessions to the living room of their hotel in order to accommodate him. Finally, on February 24th, at the hotel, they announced their decision. It was unanimous and would be read out by the chief. Marshall began by laying out the three questions the court needed to consider in reaching its decision. First, has the applicant a right to the commission he demands? Second, if he has a right, and that right has been violated, do the laws of this country afford him a remedy? And third, if they do afford him a remedy, is it a mandamus issuing from this court? The answer to the first question was, Marshall said, yes. Mr. Marbury then, since his commission was signed by the President and sealed by the Secretary of State, was appointed, and as the law, creating the office, gave the officer a right to hold for five years independent of the executive, the appointment was not revocable, but vested in the officer legal rights which are protected by the laws of this country. So, having established Marbury's right to the office, the next question was, did the laws afford Marbury a remedy? In order to answer this question, Marshall believed It first had to be determined whether the Jefferson administration's actions were reviewable by the court, and this depended on whether or not they fell within the scope of political questions, over which the president exercised a fairly broad discretion, or involved questions of law, which were the province of the court. You may recall Marshall had first voiced this distinction when he was debating the Robbins case while in Congress. But he now took this opportunity to take this concept and enshrine it in law. He read, By the Constitution of the United States, the President is invested with certain important political powers, in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion, and is accountable only to his country in his political character, and to his own conscience. To aid him in the performance of these duties, he is authorized to appoint certain officers who act by his authority and in conformity with his orders. In such cases, their acts are his acts, and whatever opinion may be entertained of the manner in which executive discretion may be used, still there exists, and can exist, no power to control that discretion. The subjects are political. The acts of such an officer... As an officer, can never be examined by the courts. But when the legislature proceeds to impose on that officer other duties, when he is directed peremptorily to perform certain acts, when the rights of individuals are dependent on the performance of those acts, he is so far the officer of the law, is amenable to the laws for his conduct, and cannot, at his discretion, sport away the vested rights of others. The conclusion from this reasoning is that where the heads of the departments are the political or confidential agents of the executive merely to execute the will of the president or rather to act in cases in which the executive possesses a constitutional or legal discretion nothing can be more perfectly clear that their acts are only politically examinable but where a specific duty is assigned by law and individual rights depend upon the performance of that duty it seems equally clear that the individual who considers himself injured has a right to resort to the laws of this country for a remedy. And the court determined that Marbury was one such individual who had the right to seek a legal remedy. At this point, Marshall had been speaking for over an hour, and it had begun to dawn on those listening that this wasn't just some run of the mill adjudication of a simple question, but that this was becoming a ruling of special consequence. Word had leaked out, and gradually a number of congressmen had begun to show up, swelling the audience. As a trial attorney, John had been known for his slow, rhythmic cadences early in his argument, which gradually grew in power and increased in rapidity, and the structure of this ruling had been written in a manner which allowed for exposition and for drama to slowly build as his reasoning progressed and the audience hung on every word. He came to the final question, Was Marbury entitled to a writ of mandamus issued from the Supreme Court? After a discourse on the history and nature of mandamus, it finally seemed as if the court would issue the writ when John said, This, then, is a plain case of a mandamus, either to deliver the commission or a copy of it from the record. But then he ominously added, and it only remains to be inquired whether it can issue from this court. Wait, what? He's been talking for over two hours now, and now he's going to ask if the court actually has jurisdiction? That is showmanship. Marshall noted that the Constitution vested the judicial power of the United States in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress shall from time to time ordain and establish, so it was clear to him that the court's appellate jurisdiction was determined by the Congress. However, its original jurisdiction, those cases in which it sits as a trial court, you know, as they were doing right then, was specifically limited, by the Constitution, to cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. This inclined the Court to wonder, The authority, therefore, given to the Supreme Court by the Act establishing the Judicial Courts of the United States to issue writs of mandamus to public officers, appears not to be warranted by the Constitution, and it becomes necessary to inquire whether a jurisdiction so conferred can be exercised. So which is correct? The expanded original jurisdiction granted by the Judiciary Act of 1789, or the limited original jurisdiction spelled out in the Constitution? Marshall was hitting his stride. The Constitution is either a superior, paramount law, Unchangeable by ordinary means, or it is on a level with ordinary legislative acts, and like other acts, is alterable when the legislature shall please to alter it. If the former part of the alternative be true, then a legislative act contrary to the Constitution is not law. If the latter part be true, then written constitutions are absurd attempts on the part of the people to limit a power in its own nature illimitable. Certainly, all those who have framed written constitutions contemplate them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation, and consequently the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the constitution is void. This theory is essentially attached to a written constitution, and is consequently to be considered by this court as one of the fundamental principles of our society. It is not, therefore, to be lost sight of in the further consideration of this subject. The Constitution was the supreme law of the land, but it was still a law nonetheless, and this leads Marshall to perhaps the most important, if not the best known, six sentences in all of american jurisprudence it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is those who apply the rule to particular cases must of necessity expound and interpret that rule if two laws conflict each other the courts must decide on the operation of each so if a law be in opposition to the constitution If both the law and the Constitution apply to a particular case, so that court must either decide that case conformably to the law, disregarding the Constitution, or conformably to the Constitution, disregarding the law. The court must determine which of these conflicting rules governs the case. This is the very essence of judicial duty. If, then, The courts are to regard the Constitution, and the Constitution is superior to any ordinary act of the legislature. The Constitution, and not such ordinary act, must govern the case to which they both apply. So finally, after nearly four hours, Marshall finished his reading. Section 13 of the Judiciary Act was determined to be unconstitutional. Therefore, the Court did not have the authority upon which to issue a writ of mandamus, and the case was dismissed. The Supreme Court had gone from being on its heels to establishing judicial review by voiding, for the first time, an act of Congress, thereby establishing itself as a co-equal branch of the Federal Government, whilst avoiding a destructive confrontation with the Executive. This is impressive. It had accomplished this not by seizing the ground and declaring it to be so, but by renouncing jurisdiction over political questions, and rejecting a legislative attempt to expand its own jurisdiction. By focusing on the non-controversial ideas that the Constitution was the supreme law of the land, and that it was the judiciary's duty to reconcile legal questions, they had established that the Supreme Court possessed the power to void laws passed by Congress. The opinion was a testament to the keenness of Marshall's mind and the subtlety of his statesmanship. He had crafted it in a way which achieved his ends, but was logically rigorous and humble enough that it left little room for direct criticism. He'd made sure that everybody got something, the Federalists got to see Jefferson scolded for wrongfully withholding the commission. But at the same time, the court did not end up demanding the commission be delivered, which was the outcome the Republicans had hoped for. Jean Smith called this ruling a massive victory for the court. Edward Corwin described it as a political coup of the first magnitude. But Albert Beveridge points out that following the ruling... The temporary silence of the political branches did not signify the end of the struggle between the Republicans and the Court. He writes, The opinion of the Chief Justice was another ingredient thrown into the cauldron of Jefferson's heart, where a hatred was brewed that poisoned the great politician to his latest day. Many months after the decision in the Marbury case, Jefferson first broke his silence Nothing in the Constitution has given the Supreme Court a right to decide for the executive more than to the executive to decide for them. And finally, Beveridge sets the stage for where we'll pick up next time, writing that the Marbury decision added fresh strength to the purpose of the Republican leaders to subdue the Federalist judiciary it furnished Jefferson and his radical followers a new and concrete reason for ousting from the national bench and especially from the Supreme Court all judges who would thus override the will of Congress. Against himself in particular, Marshall had newly wedded the edge of Republican wrath. Okay, this is where we're going to stop today. But join us next time to see what happens because... Guys, the Jeffersonians sound like they're really, really mad. But until then, why not check out the Agora Podcaster of the Month, Elias Belhadad, and his show, The History of Islam, as he examines the birth and growth of one of the world's largest religions, from pre-Islamic Arabia to the modern day. Remember, American Biography is participating in the Endangered Words Project, which is trying to raise awareness for the 50 words or phrases most likely to disappear from the American lexicon. I've incorporated one of the phrases from the list in today's show, and let's see if you can pick it out and post it on the American Biography Facebook page. You can also follow American Biography on Twitter, at American underscore bio, or check out the website, www.americanbiography.webs.com, where you can also find my PayPal link, in case you wanted to make a end-of-year holiday donation. You know, like you do for the garbage man or the mailman. Because every little bit helps, and I really appreciate it. If you need to get a hold of me for any reason, just send me an email at Podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon.